0: Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mikey Navina, and I am super pumped for today's episode. Today, I'm interviewing Matt Wallace, who, if you're not familiar with Matt, Matt has worked with tons of amazing artists. He has worked with Faith No More. He produced Maroon 5's debut album. He's since worked with Korn, The Replacements, and so many other big bands. He actually even worked with one of my bands. There was actually this band called Crash Parallel, who I used to tour manage and do live sound for back in the day. And uh, shortly after one of our tours, they went to go work with Matt, and they made an amazing sounding record. And then shortly after they made that record, the drummer left and I filled in for him for a little bit. So I didn't get to work with Matt directly, but I always heard amazing stories. So I knew that Matt was a super talented engineer and I wanted to get him on the podcast because I knew that uh, he would have a lot of amazing things to say. And he's just such a chill, down-to-earth guy. And the way he describes his process, as you'll hear in this interview, is so detailed and so thorough. And I know that you're going to take a ton away from this episode. And inside of this episode, we talk a lot about the idea of writing songs that can have a bigger impact and the ways to go about doing that. And in particular, we talk a lot about the rearrangement of songs or the reworking of lyrics and Matt just has a great approach to this whole process in general so we're definitely going to cover that in this interview and we also get into some other great stuff in terms of his approach with drums and he shares a bunch of great tips for some of the tools that he likes to use to get really clean punchy drums so yeah like I said you're going to get a lot of value out of this episode so let's just jump right into this podcast this is my interview with Matt Wallace Matt Wallace, thank you so much for being on the Mastermix Podcast. How you
1: doing, man? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you so much, Mike, for inviting me on. That's uh, very kind of you.
0: Of course, of course, man. You're working on awesome records, so uh, you know I always love talking with people who are doing amazing things. For people who might not know who your what your background is, though, can you give us a little bit of your history and how you got into this?
1: Yeah, I mean. Uh Probably similar to you and a bunch of other mixer, producer, engineers. I uh, I was in band since I was like 13. I was influenced by like, you know, Leonard Skinner and uh, Black Sabbath and stuff like that. But I also always my had an ear to pop radio. So I was always kind of torn between those two areas. And then a lot of like Cool in the Gang and Ohio Player stuff. So that was kind of what informed my early kind of music. Uh, but I was always like nerdy guy that eventually was like, hey, we should record our stuff. So I'd like get a cassette recorder and get a microphone. And then eventually I'd had another band where I'd have a, I'd record us on a cassette. I'd run it through a little PV mon- monorail mixer. And then we could sing vocals while playing our performance back to our, you know, from our, you know, mu- our musical instruments. And, uh, we could kind of overdub it that way. So, I mean, I was just always that nerdy guy that did that. And so that's how I kind of got started. I played in bands when I was, went to college at UC Berkeley and, it uh, was a DJ and, uh, you know, I, but then I built, built like a four track in my parents' garage. And then I eventually conned him into, uh, then we build an eight track. And so I borrowed some, a bunch of money from them and I sold all my instruments except for my telecaster. And I, uh, built an eight track studio. And, you know, along the way I learned everything by myself. I, I, a lot of people come up by working under like really well established, successful people. And the nice thing about that is you can learn from them and kind of, kind of do a express lane to getting knowledge. And I took the dumb way where I had to kind of learn everything myself. I did take like a, class at like a community college about uh, audio and stuff like that, which was really cool. I learned some fundamental stuff, but it was really just like blowing stuff up. I also, I built a bunch of my, you know, built a spring reverb, built a couple of plate reverbs. Um, you know, just anyway, I was just that guy that was always kind of teching stuff and trying to learn. It was just not a necessity. Uh, so it was really kind of like that. So I just did that and started recording bands in my parents' garage. And you know, it's a, there's, it's a long convoluted story, but starting there, there was a band called sharp young men that became, Faith No Man that became Faith No More. And that rhythm section recorded in my parents' garage while I was going to uh, college. We became friends. I built a studio in Oakland. It was really cool. Then I just kind of went from there where I, I just, you know, so I was really pretty much independent. I only worked at a recording studio for probably like a month or two where I actually met uh, Sylvia Massey. So it was just, you know, I was just that guy that said, hey, let's record our stuff for posterity. Where most people are like, why? You know, it's like, well, we should just do it. Let's see if we can make recordings and try to sound as good as you know, the records that inspired us. Of course, we never got even close with, you know, cassette decks and stuff like that. But I will say I got some amazing recordings on 4-track X-15, Fostex cassette deck things. Where I recorded bands that sounded really good. And that's when I really learned that, man, if you have a band that's just... The the guy knows how to play drums. Like if someone knows how to play drums and contact with the drums, you have to kind of go out of your way to mess it up. But if someone who really has that contact and is is very focused and articulate you know, you can put up a couple mics and it sounds amazing. And so that was really a big lesson for me, not having the ability to spread all the drums out over like, you know, 16 tracks and be able to kind of prop things up. This is like, oh my God, like, you know, three mics on a drum kit or two mics on a drum kit, like one on the kick and one overhead, man, I I wish I could find some of the stuff I did because it it was really good because the band was really good and the stuff was really well arranged. And if you arrange stuff really well and the guy can really play drums and the people can play their instruments, You can make amazing sounding recordings with minimal equipment, and one of my biggest arguments against things like Pro Tools is that is the better the technology has gotten, I feel like sometimes the worse the musicianship has gotten because you can rely on, oh, we'll fix it in Pro Tools, we'll tune me in Pro Tools, we'll put me in time in Pro Tools. So, and you know, going back to the advent of like Led Zeppelin or Queen or any of those bands, you were taking a snapshot of the band because if you if you listen to someone's recordings, it's like it's live. Like I mix some Queen stuff. Until your mother down, Freddie Mercury's singing live with the band. And you can hear where they dropped in. And, and and so I think that back in those days, you had to be able to perform it. Records were made very quickly. Then when you see them live, it's like, well, it sounds like the record because it's them playing. Anyway, that's a long story. But basically, I was just that nerdy guy that you know recorded stuff. And I learned – I didn't know what a producer was, so I was engineering recording bands because I, I was initially going to make my own album. That was the idea for sent the a-, a track Never happened. Once my friends found out that I made their records – and so the thing that is, is that, you know, they come in and we'd work and they'd say, oh man, you know, what do you think of this part or that part? And I'd say, well, you know, we can work on it now, but in an ideal world, you should have me come into your rehearsal. Because if I come into your rehearsal, I can actually help you with stuff that will make your recording process actually go quicker and save you money and ultimately sound better. W- which, which wasn't very smart for me because that actually kind of took money out of my own pocket. Uh, but, but it really made, made for better, the end result that's that's my long uh, ex- explanation to your <laughs> first question well you know th- there's so much good stuff out of that
0: to unpack and yeah I think I think it's really interesting that like you were just kind of that techie guy in the band who, who try to learn it all on your own. And I'm, I'm in a very similar boat. That's how I got into it as well. I was like, I was sick of my bands forgetting our songs when we would rehearse the next day. You know, we spend so much time working on making amazing music and we forget half of it for the next practice. Right. right? Um, so, so I definitely can relate to that. Um, but it sounds like, I mean, if you were, you were pretty much self-taught, you did say you you attended a class, but for the most part, it was just kind of a self-taught thing. So, and then you, and you'd also mentioned the idea of You know, there's that other route of people getting jobs at studios and interning and following people. Looking back at it, do you feel like you would have changed that that process if you could? Or do you feel like having that process of learning it on your own was was invaluable to you?
1: That's a really good question. You know, Um, that's a good question. I think the thing that was really helpful. I, I took the, I took this class at Diablo Valley College. It was a community college up in the Bay Area, because that's where I used to live. And this guy Dave Porter, who had a, a really nice multi-room facility, a 24-track called Music Annex, and he he was actually taught us early on. We he taught us some physics and he taught us about signal flow, and that was that was the biggest lesson for me because I had this like little task mixer and I used to do I used to try to bypass the mixer as much as I could to the point where I I'd, I'd just kind of go in mic pre. EQ and then straight to uh, out of the the direct out of the fader. Then I go, oh, maybe I can come out of the EQ and not even go to the fader. And then I would do it where I would just come out of the mic pre. And so for me, that that learning signal flow was really important. And I, I think, yeah, just learning by my own, I, I don't know if it was better for worse. I guess the only thing good about it is I kind of found my own sound, for lack of a better word, and I did find my own way to do things. I will say something that was really uh Difficult. Is I did. I did uh, work as an assistant engineer at this place called Starlight Sound for like two months. And I remember a couple of engineers. One in particular. You know, they do this thing where they would kind of like cover their EQ when they were doing stuff. You know, and I was just kind of looking, trying to learn, because I thought that was like a cool thing. And I think you and I are similar. We we want to teach people. If you know stuff, oh my God, share with everybody you know, because. Even though they take your ideas, they're going to do it a different version. But I remember these these guys. In one particular, this guy Stacy Baird, who was this engineer guy, who's like an upper echelon dude at the time, and he was like hiding stuff, and I couldn't see what he was doing. I was like, "Dude, I just want to learn. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to take your job, and I'm not going to even do it the same way next time around. You know?" And I, I think that you know your approach is the, is the right approach, which is teach as much as you can, share the knowledge, because when you share the knowledge people can come back with different ideas and also you can refine your own ideas. And I think it's it's really communal and we all lift each other up and everyone's going to like, even if I show you my IQ, EQ settings, you're going to take them and do a completely different thing anyway, you know, And, and I'll do the same thing. If you show me how you do your base, I'll be like, and I'll kind of mess with it. And I think it's just the camaraderie and, and, you know, just having all, all ships rise with the tide is, is really the ideal way to approach the music business and honestly, every business and the world in general, really. And I think sharing is the best thing you can possibly do. And given of yourself freely, like, yeah, man, here's how I do stuff. Like I tell people I'll show you everything I do. I don't really care. You know, it doesn't really matter to me. I'm not going to hide anything or I'm not going to keep anything because I'm not doing anything that different than most people, honestly. And, uh, and, Anyway, that's just what I do. So I think it's kind of similar to what you do, you know? Totally, yeah. Just by I, doing these podcasts, you know, you're you're really trying to you're trying to build a community and to share ideas. Of course, and I and I think that
0: you know this industry that we're in, we're all creatives here. So yeah, like somebody can learn the EQ moves that you make, but at the end of the day, like everyone's going to have their own interpretation of what the song should sound like, and it's kind of like I think it's really fun to just. You know, start from scratch with a mix, and and it's like as you start moving faders, you start to get inspired in different ways, and you're like, oh, maybe I should make this louder. Maybe I should do this. Or like, I, I think that like, you know, we don't just mix by templating exact settings all the time. Like, as you start to move things around, you start to get inspired, and that's that's ultimately what's going to give a different sound to every mix. So, um, yeah, I love what you. I love your stance on on teaching everyone. Um, one yeah. of the o- one of the other. Sorry, things-
1: sorry, sorry. Yeah. I'm going to jump in real quick. I do want to say that you're, you're talking about mixing. and I think that – I'm sure we'll talk about this more in, uh, later on. But I just think that you know people always ask me like how do I mix and this and that. And to, to me, it's exceptionally intuitive. Like I don't approach any mix the same way and it's really all about feel. And, and I'm going to say something that I know a lot of people will probably disagree with. But, but, but back in the analog days, if I were king of the world, all of the knobs for EQ, boost and cut would be blank. <laughs> because it should all be ear. Everything should be ear. You should just turn the knob till you find the, the frequency you like and booster cut as much or as little as you want. and that's it. And, it's, and I think it's really easy to fall into, well, I always kind of like 2.3k on the vocal, so I'm going to go there. Or, and I always like you know 3DB of this or that. And I think if you just and one of my biggest criticisms about Pro Tools right now is we've taken a major component of making music and we've made it visual. Yep. And we've never, ever in the old days, you, all you did is you heard it and you could feel it, like, yeah, this feels good. You start moving your ass you're like, yeah, this feels fucking good. Like, no, you know, no one looks at the console like, dude. 10 dB at you know 5k that's fucking crazy like well, well I don't know it just feels good right and and I think with 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 protos it's so easy to look at it and go oh that's not quite in time or this is that and and you just miss the idea of, like just feel and let the thing feel anyway go on you were gonna ask me no, no 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 that, that that's a really good
0: point and it was gonna kind of segue into what I was curious about like you know you talked a little bit earlier about how. Uh, And even before we started this interview, we were talking about how back in the day, it used to be so much about the musicians and their fingers and the way they hit the drums and all that kind of stuff. And now the technology has just become such a big part of how we think about approaching our productions. And we feel like we have all these tools at our disposal and we need to do it all. Or, you know, we we have these visual representations of things. Um, And I'm just kind of curious about like how you've adapted to that kind of modern digital technology and like, you know, how, how do you straddle that balance of like going too far with the software versus keeping it the, right. the analog
1: way? That's a good question. I mean, for me, the, even in the analog days and still in, in pro tools days, you know, I, the arguments I have with artists are things that they might perceive as mistakes, you know, they, Oh, that note was a little, that was kind of a, a flat note or I, I kind of, you know, it took a while to get to that note. And to me, the the biggest trick in production is what mistakes you leave in and for me i always want to be able to hear the humanity behind the speakers i want to f- have a sense of there's men and women boys and girls behind the speakers who are sweating and working and and trying to communicate something and and it's really essential and to me all we're doing is communicating emotion that's all we're doing and if 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 we could just connect our brains to the listeners like have musicians connect their brains we wouldn't even need music. It's like, here's the, here's the feeling I'm having. Uh, but because we can't do that, we, we dance or we sculpt or we paint or we sing or we play music and we're really just trying to communicate emotions to one another. And especially with men who usually can't communicate that as naturally and with as much ease as women do, men can within song sometimes communicate things, you know? Um, I always make a joke about when you go to movies and you're sitting there like with your girlfriend and then they start playing like that really sad music. And to me, that's always a cue to the guy to put his arm around his gal and go, oh, yeah, man, you know, you know, because women are crying and the guys like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is that emotional thing. Here we go. You know, Uh, anyway, I just think we're communicating feelings and that's all we're doing. Everything we do has to serve the purpose of that feeling. And that's that to me uh, informs pre-production it informs recording and it really informs mixing um, to the point where you go. Dude, that really cool guitar if I want to put it in there. It's like, man, I love that riff. If this were an instrumental record, that riff would be super duper loud. But we have a singer here. And he or she's trying to say something. And honestly, that riff is pulling my ear away. And I really want to hear what the singer's saying. The singer is the most important instrument in the recording by far. Because they're the narrator of what's going on behind them. Like we listen to this nice backdrop of music. And we're like, yeah, this sounds really cool, you know. And you have a feeling about the music, and then the narrator says, Well, all those guys and the the, the the guys and gals behind me are creating music so that I, as the narrator can step up front and go, here's what we're trying to tell you. You know, you're supposed to feel bad. or You're supposed to feel angry or you're supposed to feel, you know, uh, beat up or someone took advantage of you or something like that. So everything we do has to support that. And so, you know, when you're mixing, you have to arrange the music so that it doesn't obscure the vocal and it doesn't obscure the instruments when they're supposed to speak, you know? And, and um, and you can't have two moons in the sky. You can't have the moon of the vocal and the moon of the lead guitar player. It's like, hey, listen. So what I do is I go, listen, you guys, but you both have a lot to say here, but what we're going to do is we're going to leave this space here for the singer to narrate, and then let's make a space in the song where you as the guitar player or the whatever instrumentalist, you can have a pl- place where you can either take what the narrator has said and reiterate it musically, or you can actually present another aspect of it you know in a different way so and I, man I, I, the the biggest the biggest key to great mixes is arrangement by far by far if you arrange stuff the right way with the right everything mixing is almost easy you just push the faders like oh there it is you just move a couple things put in some cool effects but it's like there it is but if you have too much crap going on and you're trying to fight to make everything heard you know the human ear can only listen to like three things at a time You know, so if you have all this stuff vying for your attention, you're just like, you know, what do I listen to? You know, and it it gets uh, it just gets too confusing. Absolutely.
0: I I love everything you just said there. And I think that, yeah, there's. You're right like the emotion is such an important part and obviously like you know it the the lyrics are the things that our listeners connect to much more so than a guitar lick or a drum part or whatever and it's there's certainly emotions in how people perform their instruments but but certainly we have to always be mindful of the vocal and where that's sitting in the mix and I love how you how you put it as like kind of mixing almost for emotion, you're, you're, you're mixing for the emotion. You're cutting things out and moving things around to make that emotion yes. stand out. But I think that it, is, it also goes back to one of the earlier points that you brought up, which is the idea of pre-production. Because when you by the time you're in the mixing stage, things have already been recorded. So the, those emotions are already put to tape. So it's like in the earlier stages with pre-production, that's where you really have to harness that emotion and, and, and get people to give it in the recording process. So Can we, can we talk a little bit about your pre-production process and what that would look like and how you go about encouraging that stuff? Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, for me, uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of learned that early on in my eight track days because I knew that if I could work with these, with people in their rehearsal room, ultimately I would sound like a better engineer and mixer and ultimately they would sound like a better band or a better artist. And so for me, pre-production is really important and, and, and I, I feel that's really where the record is made or broken. I think that when you sit down, you go, okay, is this the right tempo? Is this the right key? So many times singers are singing at the very tippy, tippy top of their range, you know, and it's like, well, that can be really cool for some songs, but there's a couple of things to think about. One is if you bring it down a half step, you will have the ability to come up over a note and come down or or you'll, and also if you, if you're going to be playing this song for the next year live or the next 10 years live you need to be able to kind of sing it and, and and you know and people end up singing at such a high register that you know midway through the tour it's like i can't hit that note because my voice is blown out you know or 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 people age and 10 years later they're singing it, they're playing their their most popular songs like they can't get near it and they got to bring it down a half step or a step so pre-production is really essential to do that uh the structure of the song is really really important uh i spent, i used to spend i mean even t- still to this day i'm doing more mixing nowadays but you know i'll spend anywhere between 30 and 50 percent on acoustic guitars i don't care if you're a heavy heavy rock band we'll set everybody down and we'll play on the acoustics oh man and i and here's what i say i say first of all if we're in a room with a with a good pa and we have a drummer who can really play and you guys can really play well it's easy to get enamored with the sound and it's easy to get enamored with the power of what you're doing. But we don't know if we have a song. It's easy to go, oh, man, that's, that riff sounds great. And yeah, I can feel the drums and the bass. Everything's like, yeah. And I said, it's really easy to ha- kind of fall fall into a false love with like, we got a song, right? It's like, well, let's find out. Bring it down to acoustic. Okay, now what do we got? Like, And in a perfect world, I I, I would say this is true of 85% of the songs I produce, I wanted to work on acoustic guitar. I want it to work around a campfire. And and yes, we can always take a song uh, with the same three chords and make it work with production. We can add stuff and build the chorus up and stuff like that. But I go, hey, what if you we make it so that you just do some different chord inversions? Maybe you're playing the same three chords, but at the top of the chorus, you hit a different inversion so that it feels like we've gone somewhere. And then just with an acoustic guitar and a voice, you have a song. So anything you add after that you can actually reinforce it. Oh, you want to have the bass play eighth notes? We can do that. You want the drums to go to the ride and hit the snare harder? We can do that. If you want to add all this stuff, and to me, if you can pull it off a, a, around a campfire, then you have a song. And that was one of the big things when I worked with Maroon Five is that, you know, all their demos—they they did some really good demos—but they would go verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and they would just noodle out. They just play guitar solos and just noodle out. And I said, you know, you guys write some really good songs. These courses are amazing, but it's it's not happening because I, I, I think you should make a classic record that pe- that will hopefully stand the test of time and people want to cover. Now, this band was on an indie label called uh, Octone Records. R- label never put out a record before. Nobody knew Maroon 5. But I said, if we work on these songs, and and almost, except for maybe one song, all the bridges on that song were written pre-production. I just said, listen, you guys, you got to write some bridges because I go, look, get to this course too. And your songs are really good, but you want to make it where the audience goes. Oh, my God, this is really great. Where are they going to go? And then you go to this bridge that just rises up and you're like, oh, my God. And sometimes bridges can be some of the best parts of songs. And I say when you have that kind of elevation then you come down to kind of a drop down, kind of a quieter half verse three and then boom, you hit the course. Then that last course feels really good. You know what I mean? And And, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Chorus 3 was always a modulation up because that's how you made the chorus feel bigger. But with the advent of like the 90s and the 2000s, what they learned was you do a drop-down verse before chorus 3 because the difference in relative dynamics, you know, when you have a quiet verse 3 where it sounds all intimate and the the person singing is kind of down and quiet, that rise up to the downbeat of the chorus is huge. You know, but if you have a big bridge going through and the bridge has got a lot of energy – how do you make that chorus sound any bigger without putting a lot more stuff on it? Well, you have to get quiet for a moment. Or a lot of times they'll just do a thing where they'll do like a one or two bar break where they'll stop and have just an instrumental break where they'll just sing the chorus, a cappella, then you hit it. And that's how you do it. But you have to create the sense of dynamic, you know, and momentum and energy any way you can. You know, modulating up a, a step or half a step. We think that's cheesy nowadays, because they did that in the seventies and the eighties. But if you do it with dynamics and quiet you know, introspective verse three, maybe a one bar break, and then you hit that course, it's going to sound huge. Absolutely. Jeez, man, like so much good stuff. out of that. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> I, I mean,
0: I love I love what you said about stripping things down to the acoustics, because I think that that is really where going back to that idea of creating the emotion, I think I, I totally agree with you about just stripping things down, and it forces people to think about their music in a different way rather than just like hiding behind the loud rock stuff. So it yeah. kind of forces the emotion out of it. And I think it is very revealing what those emotions are when it's like really stripped down like that. I also think from a pre production standpoint, too, having everything stripped down to an acoustic really allows people to hear the parts better as well because that's the other part of pre-production you get different guitar players with different parts and different strumming patterns and all that stuff so uh, you know i think i think there's so much value in stripping things down um, yeah
1: it's really good you, you bring up a couple of good points one is yes yeah, sometimes the other guy goes i don't know you're playing that uh and then and also this act this happens i'd say nine times out of ten the people in the band are like i didn't know you're singing about that it's like, well, dude, if you don't know what the singer's singing about, how are you going to make the musical backdrop to support what he or she's saying? If they're singing something really sad, then you got to hit some minor chords. You got to change some things, you know? And the, the thing about rehearsing, uh, doing pre-production with acoustic guitar, you can talk above it while you're playing. While you're playing, you go, okay, we're going go to go the middle eight. We're going go to go the, the bridge here. Remember, it starts on whatever, you know, B minor, or whatever, you know? And that's really important to be able just to be a, and to, at your regular voice. Hey, guys, what do you, hey, let's go over here. Yeah, that sounds good. You don't get any ear fatigue you hear a song and then when you go to the the rock instruments it sounds really good because it's like oh now the song has purpose it has momentum has direction has dynamics and and, and all of a sudden you go oh, our song sounds a lot better you know it sounds amazingly better didn't even do that much just kind of listened quietly move you know focus on the good stuff try to remediate the the sketchy stuff and there you go you know
0: yeah absolutely it really does set a solid foundation for everything to, to grow from there, you know, like everyone everyone kind of knows when to dig into their parts a little bit more because they know now what the singer is singing about and how the emotions come come into play with the music and yeah, I think I think uh, that's super
1: important. You'd also yeah. mentioned a l- oh sorry, go ahead. Okay, all all this stuff really works for bands that are based like where I kind of started and came from, which is you know with with drums, bass, guitars, keyboards, whatever. Now it's different when you're working with modern music where it is intrinsic in a lot of modern music where it is the same chords all the way through and the beat might be the same thing and it might change up a little bit. But the thing that's different about modern music that is something to consider is that people who are really good at it have a, a really good verse melody. They have an exceptional and different unique pre-chorus melody and a really good chorus melody. And so if you do strip it down to just like a keyboard pad and a, a bass thing and a, and a, and a drum loop, Then the vocal has to carry it, the melody really has to carry it. So that that's a different beast than what I'm talking about with the rock bands. Go on. No, but 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 it's interesting too
0: because when I when I listen to a lot of the Maroon Five stuff. Uh, more so, they're they're more modern stuff. I thought f- I feel like a lot of it is pretty loop based, and like the choruses are very similar. They just they've changed the melody, which really says a lot about the power of a great melody. Because you know, if you can make catchy hooks out of the same thing that people already heard, then you know, obviously, you know, and that, that's not a slight to them at all. I think they do it really, really well. But um, but I think it also really emphasizes what you said you worked on with them, which is coming up with the bridges as well. So that like you know, it it is really changing that that feel. And um, and the way you just described how to come up with bridges, I think, is is a great way to think about it because I know so many people just. F- either either kind of like treat bridges as like a throwaway part or they they have a
1: real hard time with it uh, you know because mm-hmm. yeah, it's tough and you know i found out that that well fortunately when Rune five they were pretty good they came up things you know relatively quickly but oftentimes bands if, if you have more of their demos of songs that maybe aren't making the cut i've done this where i'll just you know suggest like a an existing chorus from another song or an existing bridge from another song And or even the band would be like, hey, remember that one song that we're not using, but it's got that really cool part, that bridge. Let's try that, and then just stick it in there. Like, oh, that that works. So, to me, if if you're open to the journey, then you can really come up with some great stuff. You know what I mean? And and I I do want to say one thing about production that I spent a good decade of, like, always kind of coloring in the lines and trying to like stay on time and on budget, and and um, and I think I was making kind of more safer records. And, and when I finally realized that you have to be open to falling flat on your face as a producer and as a musician, then when you're open to doing that and really look like looking like a total idiot, then you're actually really ready to make great music because you have to be open to making mistakes. You have to embrace it because by making mistakes, you're going to come, you're going to find the right thing. And it's really, really important. And sometimes you'll make these mistakes and you'll, you'll make, you'll, Make it so you realize when you come back to the original idea that that was the right idea. And sometimes you make mistakes and it's those happy accents. You play the wrong chord and then all of a sudden, like, oh my God, that sounded really cool. What'd you do? I don't know. I just played this uh, E minor over here. It's like, well, let's try that again. So I think I had to get to a place of really, really being open to making mistakes. And I also had to become much more genuine and confident to make suggestions. Cause for a long time, I think I would kind of go along with what people want to do. And I finally had and, I, and my voice would say, man, I just think we should really change something. And so I really got to say, I just say things like, Hey, you know, you know, what are your thoughts on us trying this little idea here, that idea there, or, or as you know, when you're producing you, if you can make it seem like the band or the artist came up with it, then they'll do it, you know? So that, that's really a <laughs> good old uh, psychology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You do that kind of thing. So anyway, just, but I think really trusting your gut and, and also allowing everybody in the band to trust their gut. And just and and, and to me, I, a big lesson was if somebody had an idea to just try it. Because I, I remember countless hours in the studio and countless years would go by where people would make a suggestion and you'd argue for an hour why it wouldn't work. And instead of just playing it for 10 minutes. And if you just play it for 10 minutes, usually the person who suggested it, if it was a crap idea, would say, oh, yeah, sorry, that was a dumb idea. But it, you just try it and you just hear it. You go – you know, yeah, it feels good. I'm shaking my ass to it. Yeah, it's a great idea. Let's do it. You know what I mean? And 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 anybody can have an idea, and the drummer can have a chord idea for the guitar player, and the singer can have an idea. I mean, anyone have an idea? And I think that if you're free to throw ideas across the, the up on the, against the wall, then 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 and and everybody knows that you're supported. Then no matter what you do, you're never like an asshole. Then people will try everything. Hey, what if we try it? You are like like, I know this might be kind of dumb. People is like, dude, that's really really cool, you know. And and I think supporting people to just be free to just follow their muse and just try stuff. And 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 I think if you're open to doing, if you're open to seeing the dumb stuff, you're gonna be really open to seeing the great stuff.
0: Absolutely, I love I love everything there. I think it's I think it is important and and especially in that pre-production stage to just give everyone that. Give everyone that fair fair space. And the other thing with pre-production too, this isn't something I feel like it gets discussed a lot, but I feel like a lot of musicians, when they know they're in that pre-production stage, they have that ability to get that idea that they really want to try out. Like they might just noodle it in the background so you hear it and you're and like just
1: to see if you if you catch on to it. And then it's like, oh, that's a cool idea. Let's implement that, right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. And and I think you probably noticed this too that there's always going to be the people in the band that maybe talk quite a bit and they'll say things and they'll have ideas, but it's usually the quiet one that will speak up and say the right thing. That is the game changer. Cause they don't say anything, but when they speak up the quiet one, the quiet one in the band speaks up, that's the time to listen. Cause they usually won't say anything until it's really like, okay, this is an idea. And that's really fascinating because most of the people like to hear themselves talk. And I got this idea and check this out. But the quiet one's like, Okay, I'm gonna. I'm going to I got to tell I got to say it. So they say it like, oh, yeah, that's really, really cool. So, yeah, there's
0: always like that, that like leader of the band, so to speak. Right. There's always there's always one of those and everyone kind of hides behind that. But but a lot of the the real impact in the music, I agree. It comes from those quiet people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's for me, there's two leaders in the band that that you have to pay attention to. And they both have their their strengths and their challenges. There's the leader. That's the obvious one. You know, more often than not, it could be the lead singer, and, and they tend to be more uh, verbal. And, they, and there's the leader. There's also the ones I think lead from behind. They lead from from behind, and they and it's almost like the ones who are quiet, who aren't talking so much, can actually hear and see the whole picture because they're a little bit more removed. And, and they can, and so those ones are the ones who can say things, they go, oh, that, you know what? You're absolutely right. So that's, that's really important to pay attention to the quiet ones. Absolutely. That's what I found. For sure. Yeah.
0: So how involved do you normally like to get when it comes to producing an album? Like, are you getting involved in that songwriting process all the time? Or is it kind of more of a case by case basis where uh, some bands you know, expect I, it?
1: Yeah. I generally try to avoid, I'm not a, like, there's some some, produ- there's like four kinds of producers. There's the engineer who becomes a producer. There's the uh, musician who becomes a producer. There's the vibe merchant that doesn't sing or play or write, but 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 they have an overview, that, like an executive producer. They become a producer. And there's songwriters who become producers, and you know I, I can probably I can kind of cover all those bases to an extent because I'm an engineer, I'm, I'm a quasi musician, uh, and uh, you yeah, try to create vibe here and there. And I do do co-write with people. I have had projects where I co-write, but that's not the thing that I lead with. And for me, the the, the challenge in producing is during pre-production sometimes you're just arranging and so you don't get a songwriting credit sometimes I've, I've done projects where i give a lot of ideas like oh my god like whether it's chord progressions or lyrics or whatever but i but i just i don't say anything about it because i just figure that's just under the umbrella of production and sometimes i do enough stuff it's like well i should really get a songwriting credit but i don't again don't lead with that i try not to use that unless it's absolutely necessary i prefer to have the band do it or i'll encourage the the people in the band to kind of come up with it on their own or i'll plant ideas you know, seeds of ideas and they'll kind of, you know, use some of my ideas or create their own. So I, I, again, it's, and there's a definite line where you start to become a writer and, and you decide if you want to kind of get credit for it or not.
0: For sure. So then in your opinion, what ultimately makes a good song?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, I mean, the best songs are always songs that begin exceptionally personal and the song and the lyric is really about a, a singular moment in a person's life and it resonates very very deeply with them and in many ways it's easy to argue well that's just a personal song and nobody's gonna is gonna get it because you're singing about Beth that last Thursday on the ferry boat and you know blah, blah. blah. So, so okay so then you say that's a beautiful song your course is really lovely but now if there's a way to take out the name Beth and maybe Thursday <laughs> and, and, and the try and if we can take that that germ of that idea and open it up so that people can hear themselves in the song. And once they can hear themselves in the song, then you have a chance at one connecting with each individual listener. and two, you can connect with a lot of people, I, like like anywhere from the hundreds to the thousands to the millions. And so if and and this is really a personal decision on the part of the songwriter because you can hear a song go, Hey, listen, this song is really, really good. It's really great as it is. And and I can't tell you to change it because I'm not the writer. I'm the producer. But if you're open to this journey and you're open to changing your song a little bit and making it a little more obscure, certain portions of it, then other people can hear themselves in it. And they can hear the core idea of feeling abandoned or betrayed or in love or whatever it is. They can feel that, you know. And so that's really, really important to do that. And so I just say, listen. And this is oftentimes I'll say, listen. These are your options. Uh, These are your choices. I can't make the decision for you. You have to ultimately make it. If you ask my opinion, I'll tell you what I feel. But but and even after that, you have to make the decision. Yeah, that that's really cool. I do really like that
0: approach because I think you're right. Like we singers tend to be very. Uh, maybe I'm generalizing here. Very insecure people or like it's very like emotional, whatever. Um, and so they tend to write very, very um, personal songs that are very close to them. And so they aren't usually open to, or they aren't usually thinking about the fact that other people can connect with their message, you know. Um, and so by having that simple approach of just changing, like like you said, Beth to to something else, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, that, yeah. that definitely yeah, makes me-
1: the word. <laughs> Yeah, change the word Beth to you or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And essentially, what you you yeah, the fact that singers are do, are generally more emotional, uh, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. One is they're the only musician on the stage whose instrument is their voice. It's their story like as like well. Hitting, yeah, it's their story too. But they're hitting the drum or they're playing a bass or playing guitar, and you're a little bit removed you're a little bit removed emotionally. I mean, with drums, it's going to be you know mainly aggressive or momentum or whatever. And, but, but with a singer, like that's your voice and that's very, very, very personal. And it is your story. And, and so, yeah, how much of your story do you want to be solely about you? Do you want, to, do you want this record to be just about you? Cause sometimes you, you, you know, it's like, are we making a record just for you in a very small audience? Or are we making a record for a lot of people? And that's another argument I have with people when they, They have songs that, like, we play this song live, man. People love singing the song, and there's like, they're singing along with us. And I go, okay, how many people are we talking? (laughs) 200, 500, 1,000? Because, you know, if you're talking about 1,000, that's really great. But I'm actually talking about a million. I'm talking about taking the song that that 1,000 people like. But if you change a couple things, I believe you can have a million plus people like it. And that's what I'm talking about. So, and it's, and again, this is a very personal decision. You as a band, you as an artist, do you want to keep stay with your singular voice and your approach and leave it at that. And, and by the way, that can work. It just means you have to, it takes a longer time. You can hang in there for a long time doing your singular small thing and over time, and then people will, you'll, your audience will eventually find you by you put out three or four or five albums, you play shows across Canada and the United States a, a million times and you can find your audience there. I I worked with the band Primus when they first started and they had a really, 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 really small audience because they were, they are were so insular and they're, you know, the lyrics, everything about it. And, but 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 true to Les's vision, he just hung in there, and he kept Primus. Primus, but he just toured enough and put out enough records that eventually, he found millions of people that are Primus fans. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that can happen with any band. You know. Um, uh, anyway, so that I just think that's really important. You just, you, you, I ask people, okay. One, how true do you want to be to your music? Two, how much time do you want to spend touring? Do you want to spend five, ten years doing this, or do you want to kind of, you know, maybe go a little quicker and then maybe change a couple lyrics in, in hopes that you might have a song that kind of connects, you know? And even bands that become successful, all the bands I worked that became successful, the gestation period was like eight to ten years, you know. Whether it was Maroon mm-hmm. Five, uh, Faith No More, you know, it, it was that's how long from from when they start to when they finally make it, that's what it takes. Even when you're writing popular music, you know?
0: Yeah, of of course. I think it's really important to establish that vision for the band and what they anticipate their careers to be or what they want it to be. And, and that definitely will dictate the decisions that they make. And, um, yeah, going back to the idea, that idea of just like changing lyrics around, it, it reminded me of, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the band dashboard confessional, but, but, but like I saw that, um, Maybe a year or two ago, he had actually re-recorded all of his records with the original lyrics that he had written because... He had that experience of working with someone who said, "You should change your lyrics to to attract to more people." And uh, and I guess, for some reason, you know, he always felt like, well, these were personal songs. So he re-, re re-releases records like that. And it is very interesting to hear, like how sometimes just like the smallest change can can make such a big difference in how you connect to those songs. And maybe it's because I've heard those songs for years already, and so I, I just know them in that version. But, but um, but you're right. Like There certainly are those little changes that can make a really big connection point with, with the audience. And, and to stop making those decisions in the studio of where you want your career
1: to go is going to dictate when you make yes. those moves. Exactly. And that to me is a really big – that's a very important conversation to have with a band when you're working with them because you're right. Once you, once you agree to the framework and you agree to the approach – then everything else actually kind of falls in place relatively easily and the only time there's challenges is when you've got one guy in the band goes we're going to tour for 10 years and we're going to sing about nothing but blueberry pie and whatever and then you have another person that's like i want to be in <laughs> room five tomorrow okay so yeah we have to talk because we can take either approach and both approaches are absolutely valid neither one is better than the other this is really important neither one is right or wrong but pick the one that you as a collective band want to do and once we know that then every arrangement every lyric change every recording every overdub every vocal every mix falls in, into place
0: yeah of course well i think that we most people tend to just join bands with people that are their friends and it's just like kind of like a let's do this for fun kind of thing and then it becomes something serious and it, it and at that point it's like okay, well, are we all on the same page or not? So, you know, I think as early as you can, being a, an artist in a band, like you have to all get on that same page so that five years lit down the road, you're not disappointed when someone pulls out or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, What something. What, what common mistakes would you say you see artists making before they enter the studio?
1: Oh, that's a good one. I think the biggest common mistake is thinking that you you have better songs than you have interesting i mean i should i just i should say that i should say that's so that's before we get into pre-production but but generally there's a there's a thing where everyone's like this is great this riff is great we've got a song it's like well i don't know and i've actually lost gigs sometimes saying that i mean it's really interesting uh, there's this band called oar that i worked with and, and i was producing another band and and they were ready to go and um and I remember talking to the manager, I said, I don't know if the material is strong enough yet. You know, I really think we should work a little bit more on this, you know, the mansion. And um, and he got upset, like, well, we really want to go forward now and we're just going to go forward. So, you know, we're not, we're not going to work with that. I said, OK, well, I understand. You know, I, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, but but fortunately, they end up writing some more stuff. And they wrote this song called Shattered. That was one of their biggest songs they ever did. And it was it was that. It was they needed to do that, and and I, I have to say I'm I never like being that guy, like I don't I don't relish going yeah your songs aren't happening or, you got to write bridges or you got to write more songs I don't like that feeling, um, but but I but I I I think I spent too many records where I let it go where I had that feeling but I didn't say anything, and so now I just say listen I don't really want to be the person to say this but I say listen I'm the goalie here, and 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 uh, and so so you have to kind of I have to figure it out because if if I don't catch your mistakes, then we're hoping someone in the record label is going to catch your mistakes, and if they don't catch it, then maybe somebody in promotion. Well, if not in the in the the general public, <laughs> the audience. And so I'm really the first one to say, listen, we're we're not we're not there yet. We got to work a little harder, you know. And as a producer, me working harder means more days. And if I'm getting paid a flat fee, it doesn't mean I get any more money. I'm actually getting less money per day. So when I say, let's work a little longer, a little harder on it, I'm making a personal investment. And I think bands sometimes miss that I that that concept. It's like, listen, you know, if I'm getting X amount of dollars divided by the amount of days we have budget to make this record, but I'm saying let's spend another week on pre-production, I don't get paid anymore. Mm-hmm. You know? But I'm doing this because I really, really, really want the best you guys can possibly put out. Because we're gonna live or die by the play button. And you can't be there when someone pushes play and go, well, yeah, we wish we could have overdubbed something here. I wish we could have written a different song. Or it's like, no, we live or die by the play button, and we either play it. Up through the first course and keep going, or they we don't make it to the course and then we're we're out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So.
0: But that I mean I think that that just says a lot about you and what it's like working with you. Like you're someone who really does believe in the work you do, and it's not just about you know pleasing pleasing the band or whatever. You know, it's like let's let's just let's just get this sounding as good as it can, and that's that's your level of expertise. That's that's what you bring to the projects
1: that you work on. Yeah that's what I try to do and I I mean for me the night before any beginning of any project it's always just unnerving for me because I always am not sure that I'm going to be good enough I'm not sure I'm going to be able to bring the best out of a band Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to really take their trust in me and really take it the distance. And I don't want to mess up because, you know, you and I can do multiple records in a year. And if one doesn't make it, we hopefully another one. Well, but for a band or an artist, this is their one shot for the next year or two. And, and it's really tough for me sometimes. Like, uh, and I've had, I've had moments too where like we're working on songs, like even after pre-production and we're ready to go and in the studio, it's like, Oh, we can still do this better. There's days where like the song is like, figuratively all in pieces around the studio like it's you know we've we've taken a version everyone's like well that version sounds okay it's good you know i go yeah but i i want more than good and i think we can do better and then you know it's all in pieces and you go home at night everyone's like dude you know and and to me being a producer is having the fortitude at the end of the day to say well we'll work on it tomorrow when it's it was when it's not even a good version now now not just in pieces and the next day to keep rallying people and they go like you know, what do you think it's going to sound like? How, you know, how, what's it going to sound when we're done? It's like, I don't really know, but, but I know that what we have is, is good. And I think we can do better. And I say, look, we can always come back to this. And we already, we already know how this version works, you know, and we can, we can take it completely apart and do a completely different version. And if you don't like that, we can come back to this. You know what I mean? I, don't, I you know, I've, 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 when people ask me, um, like people who aren't in the music business or, you know, they go, well, you know, what does a producer do? Or, or I try to explain to people, um, uh, or even musicians sometimes, you know, and I say, look, here's what it's like. Okay. We're on an Island. There's like a group of us We're on an Island and there's like coconuts and some palm trees and it's, everything's, everything's fine. And there's this, there's like a, there's like a rope bridge that goes off into the mist, you know? And, uh, and, and as a producer, I'm, the, I'm like, uh, Hey you guys, you know, I, I think this is bridge here. And I, and I think it, um, there might be something better over there. You know, if we go there, and they're like, well, what does it look like? I, I don't, I don't really know, you know? Uh, but I, it might be better than this right here. Yeah, but you know we like this place and everything's fine. And after a while I go, let's let's go. So I get them on the bridge and we're going across the bridge and you know it's kind of rickety and it's swaying. They're like, dude, man, let's go back, man. Our last island was totally fine, you know, island being our last song or whatever. It's fine. Yeah, come on, man, it's gonna be cool. Come, on, let's go. You know, so and we're going up on the bridge and it's shaking and the wind's coming and the rain and part of the bridge is falling and our feet are falling through and there's a big river down there. Like, dude, let's go back, man. This is sucking. You know, I'm like, come on, let's go. It'll be great. You know, and after all this, and you come through the clouds and there's like a nicer island. There's papaya and there's guava and there's apples and there's oranges. And like, oh my God, this is so much better. And they're like, why didn't you tell us it would look like this? It's like, I didn't know it would look like this. (laughs) All I knew is the island we were on was not good enough. And I felt we could go somewhere better. And I was willing to take the chance of going across the bridge. To lead you there and as a producer you're leading them like come on we can do this you know and they're they're afraid and they don't want to let go of their things that they believe in or that this song they played do we toured that song for a whole year and people know the lyrics i know but but we're going for a bigger audience we're going for something bigger and better i know i i know I, I don't know what to tell you but either write a better song or let's take this one and make it better anyway.
0: <laughs> that is my favorite answer to that question what is a producer <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you know what i mean that's a visual you know you know yeah your visual like we're and everyone was like everything's cool on the little island the smaller island the, the but but and then and then and that that giving them across to another place and you go oh wow this is really cool it's like that I that's I I knew we could go somewhere better
0: yeah you
1: you, know, you I didn't know exactly yeah, yeah, go
0: ahead. yeah sorry uh, I was gonna say like you you brought up the idea of how for a producer it's like we can work on multiple records a year and hope that one of them strikes or whatever but for the artist a lot of them it's like their one record of the year And I'm curious to get your thoughts on kind of the new music industry, so to speak, where these days it's not, it seems like people are mainly focusing on singles and it's not necessarily about making that album. It's kind of more, you know, I, I always tell bands like, release a song a month that kind of thing like to me like that's at least for independent artists i feel like that is a way better approach than trying to put all your eggs in one basket release it and two weeks later everyone forgets about it and they've heard every one of your songs so i'm curious to know how that has changed your approach to working with artists like do you still prefer to work on albums are you mainly focusing on singles or what's what's your thoughts there
1: well i mean i'll work whatever people want to hire me to do obviously if it's if it's on a major label generally you're going to do a whole album and that's usually how it goes um Uh, but, um, but it's interesting because as much as it's frustrating sometimes to think about just starting with singles, that's actually how the music business started. We started with singles in the sixties and the seventies. It was like, you put out a single and the single starts hitting the other. They go, Oh, we've got to make a record. You got to make an album now. And so it was always, that was how you kind of put your big toe in the water. I think starting it with singles, certainly with independent artists. And I would almost even argue with, uh, artists signed to major labels, I think a song a month is the right way. And, and you, you you basically said what I've said to many, many people, and that is if you put out an album, people love it, and a month later they're like, what else you got? And you're like, whoa, dude, I, we just did an album. So if you do a, 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 sing, a song a month, it can be a single, it can be whatever, make a video for it, whatever you want to do, and every month uh, on a certain date you're releasing a song and your audience gets to know that. Because I've told certain artists about this. In fact, even my daughter started doing music, and she, on the 13th of every month, she was putting out a song. And I think that idea where people come to expect it, they look forward to it. And then if you want, after six months, you can tie it together and call it an EP and release it. Or after 12 months, you can tie it together and call it an album and put it out. And by then, you've already got like a pretty well-established uh, you know, audience that really likes it. But I think that's really, really important. I think it's important because people have short attention spans, and they want to hear stuff from the artists often. And I think that idea of a new song every month, oh my God, if my favorite band put out a new song every month, I would take that over an album every year. Absolutely. Oh my God, here it is. Boom. I don't have to wait a whole year for a bunch of songs that I don't even get listen to the whole thing. I listen to the first four or five. So I think that that's a great way to work. I think it's a really good way to establish yourself and, and keep people tied into you, keep your audience tied into you because they know that they, to expect a song and they know that that's what you're, you're doing. You of know? course.
0: Yeah. I think it's the easiest way to keep top of mind. And also, kind of going back to that idea of connecting with people and making songs more emotional, whatever, like, it actually allows you to kind of refine your your process. You might put out a couple singles and realize, like, these aren't hitting. And, And, you know, it's not always about just, like, how to maximize your dollar or whatever, right? But, like, you might realize, like, okay, people tend to gravitate to when we do the heavier songs or when we do, like, the ballads or that kind of thing. So, it does allow you to kind of reconfigure your approach to your own music and and I think just keeping top of mind, especially as independent artists, I understand the major label world where it's like we're gonna pump the shit out of you no matter what, and we got a big marketing machine behind us, and you're gonna tour and this and that. But I think for independent artists, it's the easiest way just to like keep top of mind. And while you're not, you know, while you don't have the big marketing machine behind you, you can create little things that keep you on top of everyone's mind, and and it creates more opportunities for things to be shared and spread the word about you, so you can grow your audience a lot easier.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that's
0: that's really important, yeah, absolutely well, well, i I know we got we're a little tight on time, so, but I did want to ask you about a couple of uh, your productions. well well, one thing that like always stood out to me and and we kind of talked about this before we started is that, like, I've always loved the sound of your drum tones. and specifically the way you handle ambience in your tracks. I think that, like you do such a great job of making the listener feel like they're in the room with the drummer. And I'm curious to know, like, what is your approach when deciding how much ambience to have in a track? When should a track be big and massive
1: or super tight and dry? Right, That's a good question. Uh, I mean, for me, the, it really depends on the music, obviously, for the most part. But, but if you're in a, in a recording and I've got, say, some really good uh, drum room sounds, invariably, I will use it in areas where there's less stuff happening. Like at the in, at the beginning of a song, if there's a lot of space, I'll have the drums sound like they're in a room. You can really, really hear them. And the trick is to have it so the audience hears that and you kind of gently tuck in the room sound as, the, as more instruments get added. Because it just – otherwise it gets a little bit too cluttery. And anytime there's a little quiet section where the drums are by themselves, so I'll kind of bring it back up. And I think it's the kind of thing that people – their mind thinks that the drums are always ambient through the whole recording. But they're really not. If you really listen back, it's like, oh, it's during the intro, during that re and during a, a certain section, There's the drums are really ambient, but generally you can hear it kind of tucked in. So to me, it's just a, it's an aesthetic thing. I, I tend to like that kind of sound. I like feeling like the drum's are in a room. I like feel like I'm kind of in the room with the band for the most part. Um, generally, in choruses, usually you usually kind of pull the ambience back out. A lot of pop stuff, not so much ambience. Um, so that's kind of how I do it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of that kind of stuff stem from when I was had an 8-track studio in Oakland, I didn't have any digital reverb. So I actually constructed a dead drum room, and then I put microphones out in our big kind of entryway that was quite live. Then I would also send a microphone to our the bathroom I had, which I would paint it with, with shellac, so it was very, very reflective. And I'd, I'd have a microphone in there. So I really would create this ambience out of nothing because I had no digital reverb. I had spring reverbs, which didn't work well on drums. So I really had to learn how to create that. So that's kind of where it came from creating that from my A my, uh, track days, and that became kind of a signature sound or something that I liked to incorporate in my music. And then, of course, Faith the More, that was kind of that ambience with the drums, and also the bass. We would have ambience on the bass on some of the stuff, too. That's very cool. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, there's definitely a fine line of going
0: too wet or too dry with, with room ambience, and it, it sounds like your your solution to it is really just in the automation.
1: yeah automation and also i mean i definitely will do some kind of um kind of light expanding or gating where i will have the room and uh, have it triggered by uh, the kick not the kick usually the snare drum so sometimes there'll be a little bit of, like a little bit of ambience there and whenever the snare hit they would open up a little more in fact in fact uh, you know oftentimes what i would do it, in fact, here, here's one of the biggest tricks I would do, in fact, now that we're talking about it, is usually when I have a when I track a band, I also have them – we'll do uh, samples right at the end. They'll have the, hit the kick a bunch of times, like quiet and loud, and hit the snare a couple times and the toms, all this stuff. And usually there's a couple of good snare hits. What I will do is take that snare hit and create a sample out of it. What I'll do is I'll line that up with the, the live snare drum and so that every time the live snare drum that snare drum hits with the room that's a, a that goes with it right the room tracks then I'll mute the actual snare sample so every time the snare hits you're actually getting the room sound you know what I mean? Yeah. So, just so that when you snare. Hit the snare, yeah. So when you're hearing the snare, it's still the live snare. So I, I I will line up the sampled snare with all the room. These are like a close room and, and the big room with it. And so once I line it up, it, there it is. It's in there. Then I'll mute the actual snare from. The, and so there's no snare sample. I'll mute that. And then the drum ambience comes in there. So when the snare gets hit. That's the ambience of just the, the snare ambience. You know what I mean? That's very cool. And that's that, that's really good in in courses because then you don't have the kick drum going through the 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 room sounds. Also, you don't have the hi and the the cymbals, which can get really messy. And that that's a really contained, but it's also very natural because that is the actual sound of the room of the snare hitting in the room. Because you know when you're in a room with a good drum kit and someone hits the snare in the room, you're like. Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> but then you have the symbols going, then you try to compress it and it's like, ah, but but with that room sound, then you can actually compress it, do all kinds of things to it.
0: So that snare sample that you make, it it doesn't contain
1: a dry like it doesn't contain the close mic. Is it only just the ambience? No. Okay. It's yeah, just the ambience.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. You
1: could do you you can do either way. It depends on how purest you want to get. Sometimes if you have one good snare whack, then you can just do that and, and suit and use that instead of any other snare. You can definitely do that. That's but but oftentimes I'll start with just muting the dry part of that snare, so that the the actual snare gets hit, and then all you hear is the ambience. Gotcha, gotcha. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, so that's what I do, um, and that's that's really cool. I mean, I, I like that because that sounds a little more natural. Because when this person's hitting the snare drum, it's like, oh, there's still a real snare there like, because you can hear with the the timbre changes a little bit here and there, how the person hits mm-hmm. it. But you still have that kind of, oh, it still sounds like it's got a healthy uh, room sound. Yeah,
0: it. it's not just that like constant one shot sample where there is no difference between hits.
1: Right right and that works i mean i know a lot of modern productions, certainly with pop music and also a lot of you know metal and so like that it is kind of the same hit over and over again which is fine that kind of stuff really doesn't work for me and when i when i use snare samples in mixes i will always have the the real snare going and then i'll have the sample there going and anytime there's a fill i will automate the sample to come down a bit and i'll automate the real snare to come up a little bit uh because i really want to hear a real drum and here's the biggest trick that I use for mixing nowadays with drums. I've done this for the last five so years. I use strip silence. I I'll, I will take the snare and the, the kick and the snare track, and I'll do strip silence, and I'll I'll just clean it up so that all I have is a, is just the kick and the snare. And even just by doing that, it makes it sound more like a sample because it's just that sound. And then you can really compress it. You can do whatever you want to do with it. And and uh, so I'll do that first, and then. And then go through it if there's like any kind of snare chatter, I have to kind of, you know, by hand put in the, open it back up so you can hear the snare chatter, things like that. But I just want to hear the snare, and so I do that first and foremost. And so then I can really, really affect the snare more than usual. And what I'll do is if there's areas where the, um, if they're playing like a lot of splashy cymbals and you can hear the snare, that's when I will, that's the first place I'll replace the snare. I'll grab a, a, another snare and just lay it in there so that it's just the regular snare because I'd like to keep it as, as as natural if I can. So that's what I usually do. and then and then if there's like a like say there's three snares in a row for a fill, i'll I'll undo the strip silence there and just let it be the, you know without without it being kind of truncated. And that's kind of what I do, and try to do that first and foremost. Then, if I want to add samples, I'll do it, but I, it's I always always have the real snare in there, certainly for any kind of chatter. Any fills i'll I'll ramp up the volume of the snare during the fill and ramp down the volume of the of the of the uh, of the uh, sample just so it it sounds more natural because then people are like, "I don't know, it could be maybe he's not using samples. I, I think a lot of young people are used to samples like when they hear that snare s- fill, I really don't like that. I just don't like that sound. Um, I think people get used to it like autotune they're used to it, but I like to make it so that when they hear it, they go, I don't, is he using samples? Because it sounds like it's a real drum kit. That's what I strive for yeah. for me in the mixes. That, that's very cool.
0: You you mentioned strip silence. Why do you choose to use strip silence over, say, a gate?
1: Oh, that's that's a really good question because gates aren't uh, consistent and gates are things that you can set, and sometimes it works for certain sections cert- and not, not for other sections. And, yes, you can automate them. Absolutely, and gates can work. And I had to do gates when I was in the old days with with analog. In fact, if you want to really get deep, do a deep dive. In the old days with analog, mixing on a Studer 800, I would have a gate. And the problem with the gates is they don't open really in time for the attack. And so what I would do is you have the repro head and the sync head. I would trigger the gate off the sync head and delay it a little bit, so it would actually open a micro, a millisecond before the actual snare hit. So you didn't hear it being clipped. Because if you use a straight up gate, you'll hear it being clipped in analog world. Uh, so yeah, you can use a gate that works, but I think that one of the few times I like using visual mixing is using strip silence on pro tools. Cause then I can look through and go, Oh yeah, I can see that, uh, that yeah, like sometimes with the gate, you'll, th- it'll still capture a bit of the kick that comes right after it and things like that. I can truncate that. And, um, and I just like, and also the nice thing about, Oh, here's why I like doing strip silence. When I do strip silence, it can say, uh, the, I forget what the word is like, begin, edit, or whatever it is. Uh, I actually open up. So if the, if, the, if this is the attack, I actually open up 10 milliseconds in front of the attack. And you can also just determine how long you want the, this thing to open. It'll be like whatever, 40 or 50 milliseconds. But I always, for the kick and the snare, I open up so if the gate knows where the downbeat is, and I open up a little before that because I really want that air before the hit. Interesting. Because I want to hear the entire. I want to hear the entire rise. Of the dynamic of the snare because because the problem with the gate is you're gonna miss part of that you're gonna you're gonna get the right where where it hits the threshold and sometimes the threshold of the of the bleed will open that thing up because the kick is really louder or the hi-hat's really loud and so the that's the problem with that so the gate you have to set really tightly to get just the attack of the snare and then it's like eh, it sounds like a truncated snare and I want my drum kit to breathe I want it to sound like drums in a room as much as I can even if I do a ton of processing I really want to sound like Oh my God! They just put a microphone up in a room. You can hear the room. You can the snare changes in timbre, so it's it's not a sample all the time, and and yeah, with strip silence you can open up. And to me, that's the best tool for mixing drums in modern world is strip silence because i can actually make drums sound like they're samples but they're still real drums yeah that makes a lot of sense that it's the best tool ever that's it to me it was a game changer doing that was a game changer yeah and also it even makes triggering it, sometimes it even helps with triggering samples a lot of the, tr- the, the triggering programs now are really really good but but for me you know that that is just really 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 nice
0: yeah it definitely gives you a lot more control over like you said like kind of when it when it makes the sound and when it dies out um i'm assuming that when you're dialing you're you're dialing in your i think it's called the threshold like before before the the hit i'm assuming you're you're making that as tight to the hit as possible to keep the attack but not introducing a lot of extra background noise because like i would would imagine like symbol bleed and that kind of stuff could become a problem if you're hearing it a split second every time yeah
1: yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. Generally it's uh, yeah, I, I may, I try to keep it as tight as I can. In a perfect world, I would just do like a one or two millisecond window right before the snare hits. And I did that for a while, but the problem is that there's sometimes there are snares that are a little quieter and then I was losing them. So now I'll just like eight milliseconds just to open it up. And generally it's, you know, it's, there's not any real discernible bleed. And the nice thing about strip science is of course you can adjust it. You know, if you, if you want to just make it like one millisecond and it works, in, in fact, I've done that too. Sometimes I'll do it really tightly, one millisecond, and I'll just kind of tab through each one. And I'll find the ones that were a little quiet, and I'll just kind of open up a little bit by hand. So I've done that too. You know, Absolutely. Both of those things work, but man, strip silence for me, game changer for making great-sounding drums in the mix. That's the thing. You know? And I tried to accomplish that in the analog days by having the noise gate open up a little before the snare drum just so I wouldn't lose the attack because I hated that loss of attack. And I could hear it. You, hear, you go, oh, that that's a gated – that's a gated snare, not the gated snare reverb. I'm talking about just the like snare itself is gated, obviously, and I just didn't like that, you know. Um, but it's interesting. With the nice thing about strip silence, when you do it just right, every time you hit the, hear the snare, it sounds like a sample. It's just like it's just a hit and and no kick behind it, nothing in front of it. It's like oh, it sounds like a sample. It's really cool, and it's a it's a live drum, you know. Yeah,
0: it's a great way for cleaning up your track because because yeah, I think I think so many people. Especially beginners, they don't think about the, the that air between hits, and there's just so much noise in there that clutters your mix, you know. So having having it all cut out like that, I think is huge. I think that that's definitely one reason why I think samples became such a popular thing was that you just had that those clean hits and they were consistent and you could trust them. There was no bleed, all that kind of
1: stuff. Like yeah, you know yeah, exactly. And the other thing about strip signs is that once you and sometimes what I'll do is I'll have the I'll have the the live snare in there. Uh, and I, then I'll have the strip silence version of it. And then nice I say about the strip silence is sometimes I will use the strip silence to send to all of the, uh, you know, the extra the side chain compression stuff. Because if you send the regular snare in there, you get a lot of spill and a high and stuff like that, and it gets a little kind of cumbersome. But if you just have that focused attack hit snare, that's just a snare. Man, you can send that to all the side chain compression and limiting, and it's really good because then you can hit things really hard, and it's really in your face, and you don't hear any of that bleed and stuff. It's really, really, really good. It's it's really – for me, it's been amazing. I just love doing
0: that. That's a great tip. I think that's another thing people forget too. Like sidechain, the cleaner you can make your sidechain, the better, the more control you yeah. have of everything. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, because
1: then, then you feed it to all your, dil- your your reverbs, and you feed it to your, it's like if you have like really crunchy compression, stuff like that. Because, you know, the crunchier of the compression, if you start having distortion and stuff like that, once you have symbols in there, it gets really hard to listen to. You know, it's just really annoying and, and painful. So, man, if you just have a, a, a focus snare going in there, it sounds really, really good.
0: Yeah, that's great. I love that a lot. Um another another element of your mixes that I I always really liked for just productions in general is the sound of your bass tones. Like I always feel like you have you have very like well-defined bases that just stand out in a mix that they sound full but they're like they're audible, they're clear. Um, do you have any tips for dialing in a great great bass tone?
1: Jeez, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess the only thing I can say is that for Okay, in the in the analog days, I think you did have to choose between a DI and an amp because there was too much of a time differential. And back then, we used to use these uh, Roland SDE 3000 delays that would go in tenths of milliseconds. And I used to take the DI and move it back until it I could audibly hear it line up because I couldn't visually do it. But I would move the DI back so that it was hitting at the same time as the – the amp because the problem with the amp of course is it goes through the electronics speaker and there's a gap between the air and the speaker and the microphone so that was always there was always something about that that smeared it and so now with the advent approved tools one of the nice things about visually mixing is that if you have a di that's going to be a little on top that's gonna be on the beat or ahead uh, and then the amp is you can actually move them I move the DI back and I generally just move it back so that it it at least sits together and then I try to use them together because otherwise, Without, without doing that, DI and, and amp together just is hard to use because there's too much of a uh, – there's, there's some phase anomalies in there because of the time differential. But that's, so that's what I try to do. Just but It's always about moving the DI back for me instead of moving the amp forward, uh, at least at least in analog days. Nowadays, I guess I could move the, the amp forward if I, if, I, if need be.
0: Well, you would think that if the musician is hitting the string, then the DI would almost be like the kind of golden rule because that would be the tightest yes. to what they play, yes. right?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, generally, yeah.
0: Yeah. So then, yeah, so the, then, is,
1: the, other, the other thing is was different is that you know, g- usually, at least in the era I came up with, most certainly most guitars were almost always on top of the beat, almost always, like by 20, 30 milliseconds. And then and then bass players could sometimes be on top of it. So if you had someone who was on top, you could move it back. But, but yeah, you're right. Generally, the bass player is going to be okay for the most part. Yeah, I will say that now this is going to go back to um, analog world and it doesn't really pertain to people in, in digital world today. But in the olden days – most drummers were always going to play on top of the beat and, and uh sorry well drummers yes but once i had a good drum track most guitar players on top of the beat and so if you told a guitar player hey can you just lay back a bit you're kind of on top of the beat uh they, they would just play quieter now with pro tools you can just move people around but back in those days you know your options were they would play really aggressively but be on top or they play kind of quiet and kind of measly and it'd be on the beat so what i would do is i'd take the headphone mix and I would run it to an H3000 delay, and I used to pre-delay the headphones of guitar players. Because if you told them to lay back, they they didn't play the with the same aggression. But it, and I actually had settings on my on my H3000 of different guitar players. Like this guy's twenty milliseconds, I had this guy's thirty. Set that so when they played, they're playing on top of the beat to what they're hearing, but that that thing has actually been delayed. So when it would land on the tape right in time this is the kind of stuff you had to do before pro tools to kind of get things to sound and feel right that's amazing
0: i love i love hearing tips like that because it's it's the stuff that we don't often think about in digital you know we're just so used to just like yeah the technology does all the work for us or (laughs) we can fix it after the fact Yeah. yeah yeah that's amazing so do you do you subscribe to the idea of like everything being like super tight to the to the grid or do you do you still prefer having like a little bit of looseness between your tracks
1: yeah, I mean, I like some loses. It really depends on the band. I mean, a lot of it depends on the confidence of the players. And if people are confident that they're going to push and pull a little bit and they're good with it, then it's, it actually sounds really nice just letting it go. And I've done records like that. But but more often than not, I think people aren't as confident if they hear things kind of moving. And and now that – like here's the thing. Before, before Lindrum, people heard drummers and they thought drummers sounded great drummers sounded great you know they're playing yeah, it sounds great but once they heard lindrum and it was right on the beat that was the first time where people go oh wait a second you know the drummer's kind of uh, all over the place so so once we heard that we kind of readjusted our notion of what's acceptable so then we have to edit drum takes to kind of put them in time uh, and so nowadays people hear perfectly processed sample drums all the time and they get used to it, they want to hear that and i i think that it's it makes everything sound homogenized and I'd rather that people sound a little more unique. And that's why I don't like the idea of having anything sound like a sample. I like to kind of try to make it sound like it's was actually played by somebody. And I do, you know, I, cause now I have to pro tool my own drums just because of budgets and stuff. And I try to keep it a little bit loose if I can, you know, I try to leave a little bit of humanity in there, you know? And, and also the, I think the, the biggest trick is if you do go with kind of locking the drums down, try not to lock everything else down. Like if, if you have the drums locked down and maybe locked down the bass let the guitars be a little loose. Cause then at least it sounds like a rock band and it sounds like it hasn't been mass produced and it hasn't been agonized over and kind of, you know, just basically squeeze all the life out of it. And I think if you can do that, then at least it still has a feel of old school. Like, Oh yeah, the guitar guys are on top and everything's a little like, you know, moves around a little bit, but, but the rhythm section's really solid. That's what I, I kind of strive for these days. Yeah. I think that's a really and cool had, approach. I've, yeah. And I've done band, I've done albums where people just like, I did this guy Eric Gales, who's like who's this wicked guitar player, and man, we had the the band in my studio, didn't touch any of the drums, didn't touch anything, and it, it definitely has some movement, but it, it it just feels so good, you know. That's the thing.
0: Yeah, I think that that's really cool because I mean, obviously, within reason, like when like you want people to sound close to the grid. You know, but yeah. but if it's like slightly off, it it does sound musical, and and I like that approach of just like you know edit your drums so that those almost become the click track that people are used to hearing, yeah. and then like you can have that normal musicianship on top of it, and you know it'll sound fairly natural. And as long as you know the the strums are all locking in together or they're pretty pretty close, then it's not going to sound sloppy. So yeah,
1: yeah, and and one of the things actually one of the I say, I will say one of the biggest things I do these days is. With a drummer for a drummer comes in and almost always are going to be on top of beat. What I would, I've done this on a number of projects where I'll just take the drums and I'll kind of find out, you know, is he or she 10, 20 milliseconds in front and I'll find the kind of the average and I'll take the entire drum track. Once I have the drum track I like and just move the entire drum track back just a little bit so that it's generally in the pocket. And I've just done that and just left it alone. Because then you have, then you've got, a, you, then everything's on the click. In case you do use any samples or, 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 or loops and things like that, and that way the, the drum kit's like it's it's in time instead of being 20 milliseconds in front for the entire pass. Just take the whole thing, go move it back, done, and then play bass on top of it, then play guitar. So that to me has been one of the, the things that I do pretty regularly. Is just take the whole kit, and just find out where the person's, you know, where they are, and they just move it to just the average, averagely on time where the snares hitting on
0: time. That's very cool. Uh, that's a great tip as well. For sure. And it's, it's very similar to like, just, you know, talking about like the bass and the DI thing where it's like, you're just moving things around to fit what, what seems best in, in the track. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Sometimes a little just averaging. Sometimes if you just help average people out a little bit, that's actually all that's really needed. You know what I mean? And and if the, and if your rhythm track is averaged out, so they're pretty solid, then you go, okay, great. Now guitarists just, you can give them a little more leeway to kind of do the, do what the guitarists do, you know?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, One last question I want to ask you about mixing is we talked about what makes a great song,
1: but what makes a great mix to you? Okay. That's a good question. And here's the thing that's really important for people to understand. (laughs) It's eight words. A great mix is not a perfect mix. Because here's what I found out. Sometimes you'll do a mix and it was like, oh my God, this is really great. And they'll go, oh, can you bring the Hyatt hat down here? I can do this. And then over time, and then people go, Oh, it doesn't sound very good. It's like yeah, because you know what? Now we have a perfect mix because with with Pro Tools and all this stuff, we can sample and put things in time. We can move all your little things and make your height up and down and all this stuff. That's not perfect. Great mixes sometimes have something too loud. You know, if you listen to old stuff like the Rolling Stones' and the Shaker, it's just too loud. But but you know what I mean? It doesn't matter. So so a a, a great mix is something that moves you. And if you can just go with the feeling, go. Does it move you? Great. And then try a couple of changes. But if you start getting to the place where it becomes perfect, then we've lost what was what was essential. And that is. And and by the way, especially if you're doing rock, rock is not a perfect mode of music by any stretch of the imagination. It's. And by the way, it's supposed to be rebellious. It's supposed to be messy and sloppy and nasty and pushing forward. You know what I mean? So that's how it is sometimes. And you got to just go. You know. I, I think that if, 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 if something moves you because I've, I've done mixes that are just blown out and pushed and shoved and and and, and sometimes that's what it takes and, and you make it really aggressive to move the audience but but if you listen back it's like uh, in fact here's the thing okay uh, Faith the Moore's album the real thing that had epic and all this stuff on it is absolutely not those are not great mixes so much to the fa- to the point that after I mixed that record and I mastered it, I was so crestfallen because it just sounded so bad to me that I called my mother and asked her how to get into real estate because it was way too high-endy, wow. way too much compression. And it just sounded really bad. And I thought I just ruined a band's album. It sounded really, really bad. It sounded bad on my car stereo and it sounded bad on my home stereo. And I was really like, I, I, I've got to find another job because I don't know what I'm doing. But you fast forward then on, on and MTV, on MTV on radio, it sounded amazing that record just leapt off the speakers. So those are, I guess, you know, you could call them great mixes, but they're far from perfect. There's, I compressed Mike Patton's vocals twice going to tape through a, through a DBS-166. Went through one side as a compressor, went to the other side as a limiter, went to tape. During mixing, took that vocal out, ran through the same thing, compressor, <laughs> limiter, into the mix. And then I had bus compression. And I compressed everything and and you could argue that that's a that's how you shouldn't make a record, but it felt right and it moved people, and it had an energy. it had a had a youthful, angsty, snotty energy, and that energy was absolutely correct for that record. technically, you know and and the thing that was really funny is that people would use that record to AB when they were mixing. Like I'd be in studios, I'd walk down the hallway and hear people and they'd use the some, you know, like Epic to AB and I go, Oh my God, you probably don't want to use that to compare your mixes to <laughs> Cause I, it's, it's, I thought I'd, I did I I didn't do a good job on it. And I subsequently on angel dust, I went the opposite direction and didn't use a bunch of compression. and didn't do too much high. end, it was all about the low end and letting the, the music breathe. Cause I wanted a different kind of record. Um, so to me, I mean, there's 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 a lot of uh, records that just aren't technically perfect, but but they move you, and and just because you can make something perfect, doesn't mean you should, and that applies to the mix, that applies to putting things in time, and that really applies to putting things in tune, you know, and to me, it's better to to do a general, uh, you know, relative tuning where you make it so it's tuned instead of tuning every little thing. Like I, I don't that tuning every little thing, I just don't like that, and and to me, the a way a singer gets he or she gets up to the note that that's really important to part of their, their style really. Um, anyway, I just think, I think, you know, and here's the thing with pro tools, I can take any four people off the street and make a, 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 a really professional selling record because I can put all <laughs> the plane in time and I can put it in tune, but it doesn't mean it's, it doesn't mean it's great music.
0: Yeah. That's a great lesson. I love that's That's an amazing story to hear too. Cause I think that so many people feel like they need to have their mixes so perfect to to just to feel like they can release them and to your point there it's like an imperfect mix or at least what you thought was imperfect was able to make a huge impact and it connected with people so yeah i i I love that that's an amazing point to to end off on man thank you so much for sharing that Uh, yeah i think i
1: think mixing is like a bell jar i think you i think you start and you get to a point where it's really 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 good and then it's diminishing returns where it becomes you're working for perfection and i think there's a point where you're just like it feels great. You know, everyone's just like, Dan, yeah, it sounds great. And just like, because otherwise you start getting your brain on it. And, and the problem is that individual musicians want to hear their instrument louder than everybody else, because when they're playing live, that's what they hear most. When you're a drummer, what do you hear most? Drums. Bass player, you got that big cavity behind you. That's all you hear is bass. Same thing with a guitar player. And the thing is that you really want to hear it as, as an audience member, listening to a band and how do they all sound together? You know, and it's not your instrument louder. It's everybody just sounding good together. So anyway, I, th- I think that you can bypass, you can go past a really great mix if you aren't careful and you can get, go to a perfect mix. And and once you homogenize and make every little thing, then, it's just, then it doesn't sound human to me anymore. Really? Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. That's a great point, and uh, yeah, again, thank you for for sharing that. I think that's it's such a good point that people overlook. So, yeah, that's huge. Um, for for people who might want to follow you online or learn more about you, what's the best way that they can learn about what you're working on?
1: Oh, uh, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think I've got a website, but I haven't looked at it in a while. Uh, I have to figure out what that is. But I mean, I'm I'm on Facebook. I'm Matt Walls on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I think I'm like. Wizard Wallace, but I don't really, I don't put up too much stuff about my work uh, on those things. Not too much. I'm more just like personal stuff. So I don't know, but but the, but that's a good way to find me. And uh, you know, cool. Yeah, I think that's it. or they can you know yeah I don't know I think that's yeah I guess I don't know if I should give you my email address or I don't know what. But but anyway I say I say start with Facebook, start with Instagram. Uh, I've got a I've got a Matt Wallace producer, some kind of I have to find it. But anyway I've got a I've got a, a website somewhere that you know is, is up there. I, I could probably send that to you or something. Yeah. Feel free
0: to send me the links. I'll put them in our show notes. Um, that that, that way people can connect with you if they, if they're uh, wanting to work with you and that kind of stuff. Um, lastly, any, any cool projects that you're working on right now that you can talk
1: about? Uh, yeah, well, I just have this band called the Revelries that's out now. Um, on this label called edge out. That's part of universal music and they're really good. They're a young band. They're super, super, super uh, energetic. And that's kind of the the thing that I'm really most excited about right now. Uh, I did some mixing for this band called ripe that are on, um, glass note. They're really cool. They're really super funky. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that's about it. I mean, a lot of baby bands, a lot of unknown stuff, just a lot of mixing, a lot of, uh, just, just stuff that's hopeful one day be, be, you know, popular, you know, but, uh, but I, you know, I, I, I taught this, uh, uh production record production class at ucla extension years ago and i remember I, i'd take my students around to the studio and show them these ba- you know the band i'm working with and and they're like yeah yeah, you know, we want to we we're hoping you we take us by a studio where you're working with someone who's like really famous so like yeah well what can you do six months later everyone writes so to me like, oh my god we're in the studio with maroon five i didn't even know they're gonna be famous like yeah well they're a baby band you know what do you do <laughs>
0: <laughs> so cool
1: well, Matt, thank you once again for
0: taking the time out of your day to do this podcast. This was an awesome interview. You, you shared so much amazing information, and I'm sure that our audience is going to love this interview, and there's a ton that they're going to be able to take away from it. So thank you.
1: Mike, really a, a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you. Uh, you know, I, I really appreciate the, you know, being able to kind of share some ideas and stuff together. I really like your approach that you're really trying to be inclusive, and you're trying to Educate people, and and it, that's really something that's super super important in, in the community of music. And so I really uh, uh, admire and applaud what you're doing with that. So I thank you very much. And once again, man, your mixes sounded great, man. On my on my my little uh, you know laptop here, the, the 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 everything sounded great, but the bass in particular was really round and present and good sounding and just anyway. So nice nice work.
0: Wow, coming from you, that is a huge compliment. So thank you so much. I really appreciate that. All right, man, let's wrap up i will talk soon. Take care. Sounds okay. great. Thanks. Take care, Mike. So that was my interview with Matt Wallace. And what did you think of that? I thought it was amazing. I love the way that he just went into so much detail about his pre-production process and reworking songs and, you know, working on bridges and all that stuff. Like the way he described the concept of making a bridge and the different approaches that you can take with it. It was just such a clear explanation and I think that if you've ever struggled with writing bridges with your songs, you should definitely go back and re-listen to this episode cuz the way he described it is just so perfect and there's just so there's a couple different options that he gives you, but it's just it's so important to have an amazing bridge. And obviously, in the case of Maroon 5 for Matt Bridges were super important, and clearly that record had a lot of success, so Matt knows a thing or two about making a good bridge, and uh, he just detailed his entire process right here. So yeah, Matt, if you're listening to this, it was a lot of fun having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being on, and uh, hope that we can do it again soon. Now, for you, the listener, if this is your first time listening to the Master Mix Podcast, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes whenever they go live. All of our episodes go live on Wednesday mornings. So, again, make sure to subscribe, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever. By subscribing, you'll be the first to know about all of the new episodes. And also, if it's your first time listening to the podcast, or even if it's not, Definitely make sure to go visit MasterYourMix.com. We've got lots of cool stuff happening on the website. We've got lots of great videos, blogs, tutorials. And while you're there, definitely make sure to check out the Mixing Mindset book. This is my Amazon number one best-selling book, all about creating pro-sounding mixes from your home studio. And inside of it, I give you a detailed step-by-step process to follow so that you know exactly what order you should work in, what you should be listening for, how you should apply processing, and so that you can start to feel confident in your workflow and make better sounding mixes because that's what this is all about right we don't want to be making songs sound like demos we want to make songs that sound like pro radio ready singles so grab the book and it's going to give you a lot more clarity on how to do that all right that is it for this episode guys thank you so much for sticking around to the very end really looking forward to the next one we'll talk soon have a good one thanks for listening to the master your mix podcast To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.